Well, this is uh, our third week in our series called the Stories of the Cross, where we are tracking kind of the last day of Jesus' life over the course of this six weeks as Jesus moves slowly towards uh, his death on the cross, which we, we celebrated Easter time at the beginning of April. And the way we're tracking through these last stories of Jesus is we're following along kind of one character at a time, just examining how the story appears through the eyes of the different characters who surround Jesus on his way to the cross. So two weeks ago, we saw the story, we saw Jesus through the eyes of this anonymous woman who anoints Jesus' head with oil and proclaims him, we said, in the act, proclaims him to be God's priest, the one who mediates a relationship between people and God, who represents the presence of God to us and who represents the presence of our, us in the presence of God. She proclaimed him to be God's king who was bringing God's kingdom into the world. And she said by this act of anointing that he would accomplish all of this. He would become God's priest and king through his death on the cross. Last week, we looked at the story of the disciples eating the last supper with Jesus. It wasn't really a story as much as it was like, reading a menu for a Passover meal, but it was, we unpacked the Passover meal. We unpacked the last supper, which we celebrate in the Lord's supper. We unpacked it together about how it's about us reenacting and participating in an act of worship that celebrates what Jesus has done for us in the past, bringing his forgiving, transforming, healing, restoring love through Jesus' death on the cross, what he's doing for us in the presence in giving us the gift of each other and transforming our lives individually and together as a community that is filled with his spirit and what he will do when he returns and one day brings healing and hope and restoration to all of creation. Well, this morning we want to turn our attention to the protagonist of the story, to the, the main character, to the hero, to Jesus himself, and follow Jesus' own story as he moves from that last supper celebrated to his disciples to his trial uh, before the religious leaders in Israel. This, this sequence of events in which Jesus' life seems to get swept up in this current of events, a, a series of unfortunate incidents where suddenly this innocent man who was widely acclaimed as a prophet and a teacher just a few days earlier is now widely derided as a fraud and a phony and who's convicted as a criminal and sentenced to die. It's this whole series of events in which Jesus' life seems to get swept away. And yet, as you look at the story, the way it's told by Matthew, what you discover is that Matthew doesn't see the story of Jesus happening that way at all. In fact, as you look at the events of Matthew chapter 26, the way Matthew tells them, what you discover is, according to Matthew, there is no one in the entire story who is more in control of what's going to happen than Jesus. Jesus, for example, 
right from the beginning of the story, knows more and better what's about to happen than anybody else. This is how Matthew begins chapter 26, this final sequence of events. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, sort of the whole rest of the teaching of the book, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus the, the whole story begins with this kind of spoiler-filled prophecy out of the mouth of Jesus forecasting exactly where this story is headed in the end. He says to his disciples, listen, he says, we have kind of a good news, bad news sort of a situation here. So the, the good news is the Passover is just a couple of days away. Of course, everybody was excited to celebrate the Passover. It was a national holiday and, and everybody went to the capital in Jerusalem and people just loved celebrating with friends and family. This, this, this remembrance of how God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Everybody loved the Passover. Jesus says, Passover is just a couple of days away. He said, the bad Bad news is uh, I'm going to be dead before it's over. Jesus is the one who sees where the whole story is going, which is immediately by Matthew set up side by side with the actual events of the story. In verse three, it says this, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Um, Jesus prophesies to his disciples, um, you know, the Passover's coming. And before the end of the Passover, I'm going to be dead. It, Matthew gives the impression that as they're having this conversation... The, the, the high priest has kind of convened a meeting of the subcommittee of the, to the subcommittee to get rid of Jesus. He's convened it in his house and they hatch this kind of secret plan that comes in three phases. They have to arrest Jesus in private so as to avoid raising, you know, any sort of um, concerns or raising the ire of the people who still, you know, in some measure supported Jesus. They have to arrest him and they have to kill him, which is the whole getting rid of uh, Jesus part. But they want to wait until the Passover's finished. Wait until, you know, Jerusalem clears out, till the town empties out of some of the pilgrims. The Jerusalem's population this time was about 600,000 people around Passover time. It swelled to about 3 million and some not insignificant percentage of the pilgrims came from where Jesus was from and were very supportive of Jesus' ministry. And they're like, you know what? Why don't we just wait until the festival is over and then we'll, you know, kind of get Jesus out of the way when nobody's looking. And right from the very beginning of the story, Matthew is demonstrating how much Jesus is actually in control of what's about to happen. I mean, Jesus is the one who speaks first. And then, and then Matthew tells the story of this meeting to, of the subcommittee to get rid of Jesus. And it's almost like the impression Matthew's creating is that these guys are just actually living out the prophecy that Jesus has already declared. 
They're the unwitting pawns in what Jesus sees as what God is doing in the upcoming days. Never mind that, Jesus is actually writer about what's going to happen than they are. This is their plan, and they're wrong about what's going to happen. They say, why don't we wait until the end of the festival? You know, we won't do it during Passover. Jesus says, guess what? Passover's coming, and I'm going to die. And it's actually within 24 hours of these events that Jesus ends up dead. Jesus is right about how it plays out, and they're wrong. Jesus seems to be the one who's in control. He's got these moments of foresight or insight or divine sight or whatever it is. Jesus knows ahead of time that one of his own disciples will betray him. I said last week that they celebrated the Passover meal together. In verse 20, it says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table, eating the Passover with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, the shockwave goes through the room, of course, right? Everybody's taken aback. What do you mean? I don't understand. What are you talking about? Surely you can't mean me, Jesus. I would never do that. And Jesus said, oh, one of you will. Remember, I said last week that at the Passover, one of the things they would do at the beginning of the meal is grab a piece of lettuce and dip it in a bowl of Bitter herbs that reminded them of the bitterness of their life in slavery. Jesus says one of the, one of the men who has dipped their, er, dipped their lettuce in the bowl of herbs with me is going to betray me. Now that wouldn't be just one person. There were probably only a couple of bowls and a few used the one at this end and a few used the one at the other. Jesus says it's one of the men who has used my bowl. And Judas maybe wondering whether eyes are upon him because Matthew's already told us that Judas went to a meeting of the subcommittee to get rid of Jesus and offered his services to help them get rid of Jesus for about 3,500 bucks. Judas looks at Jesus and he says, you, you don't mean me, do you, Rabbi? And Jesus quietly says to Judas, just go do what you need to do. Jesus ahead of the fact, is not just aware that Judas will betray him. Jesus is already aware that Peter will deny him and that all the rest of the disciples will abandon him. They leave dinner. They're walking out of the city of Jerusalem. They're headed to the Mount of Olives to this special spot that they love to go to to pray called the Garden of Gethsemane. And on their way, the disciples are still chattering about this idea of Jesus at the table saying, one of you is going to betray me. And it's like Jesus turns to the disciples and says, listen, say what you want about Judas. Before this night is over, all of you will have abandoned me. And Peter says to Jesus, not me. He said, even if all these other knuckleheads, you know, run away and abandon you, Peter says, I would never do that to you, Jesus. In verse 34, it says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter's like adamant. No, I'll never do that. And Jesus says, yeah, what? talk to me in eight hours. Because all y'all are going to leave me dangling in the wind. You're going to take off to save your own skin. And he says, Peter, three times this night, you're going to deny that you ever knew me. 
And it's all true. And we'll talk about Peter next week. So you get this sense all the way through the story that Jesus is actually the only person who knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knows exactly where this story is going. And to be perfectly frank, it terrifies him. They arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says to his 12 disciples, he says, Peter, James, John, you you guys come with me. The rest of you stay here. We're going to go a little further and we're going to pray. And Matthew says that as they walked away from the rest, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those words kind of undersell what Jesus was experiencing. As he wanders away from his disciples with Peter, James, and John, they wander into the darkness alone. And the heaviness of what is about to happen in Jesus' life begins to settle in his spirit. The word sorrowful is actually, uh, the Greek word means to experience an extreme level of mental and emotional distress. Of agony in your mind and in your spirit. The word trouble kind of shades toward anxiety or even panic. Jesus is beginning to lose it. In fact, Jesus is on the verge of a breakdown when he separates his three best friends from the rest of the disciples. In verse 38, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch with me. The word overwhelmed with sorrow, that's one word in Greek, and it is the even more intense version of sorrowful. Jesus says, I'm not just sorrowful, I'm not just you know, kind of overcome with mental and emotional distress and anxiety and panic. I'm actually overwhelmed. It's killing me on the inside. And he says to them, please, he says, I'm going to go and pray. You please pray with me. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. It sounds so tidy, doesn't it? As this little kind of one sentence prayer where Jesus says, you know, if you could allow this to not happen, that would be great. But, you know, whatever God, whatever you want, this kind of prayer that he could have prayed in the quietness of his armchair in a living room, that is not what this is about. You have to picture Jesus all alone, in the dark, overcome with anxiety and panic and fear and grief. He's thrown himself face down on the ground. He is sobbing and convulsing and panicking and begging with God, pleading with God, bargaining with God. Don't make me do this. It says in one of the other gospels that Jesus prayed for an hour. Imagine Jesus on his face for an hour begging with God to not force 
him to go to the cross. He gets up, he goes back, and he looks at his disciples, and they fall asleep. He wakes them up, and he says, can't you at least pray with me? And he goes back, and for a whole other hour, he throws himself on his face before God, and he begs God again, and he comes back, and they're asleep, and he goes back, and for another hour, he begs with God. He pleads with God in this panic and distress to spare him the fate that he knows is coming. And yet, in those moments, Jesus finds the resolve to do what he does not want to do. And that is to submit to God's will that he go to the cross. You can kind of see it in the way Jesus' prayers evolve in the story. He starts by saying in his first prayer, God, if it is possible, please take this cup from me. Don't, don't make me go to the cross. God, I understand you want to provide salvation in the world, and I'm all for that. Now, maybe we can do a little bit of brainstorming and think a little bit outside the box on what that could look like. Does it have to look like this? If there's any way that we could figure out another way to do this, God, would you consider a plan B? His second prayer is a little bit different. His first prayer is, if it's possible, don't make me do this. The second prayer is this. If it's not possible, then your will be done. Jesus has kind of moved in his spirit and now he's in a place where he's saying to God, I'm, I'm gathering that this is the way things have to go, that there's not a plan B. And if that's the case, if there's no other alternative, then I can step into what it is you've asked me to do. Matthew doesn't tell us the the words, the gist of Jesus' third prayer, except to say it was kind of more of the same. But you kind of wonder whether in Jesus, the third time Jesus prays, whether he comes to God in a spirit more like, God, I don't want to do this. But this is what you've asked me to do. Give me the strength to do what you've asked me to do. There's a movement in Jesus' prayers in the garden. You can also see it in the things that don't change in Jesus' prayer because in every one of the prayers that Matthew records, Jesus ends exactly the same way. Not my will, but your will, God, is what will be done. It's exactly what he teaches his disciples to pray way back in Matthew chapter six, that we pray, your kingdom come. God, may the world become the kind of place where people everywhere live in harmony with you and in harmony with themselves and in harmony with each other and in harmony with the world and with creation itself. May your kingdom come, which means that your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may our world and our community and my life be the kind of place where everything only ever happens the way you want it to happen, where we only ever always choose to do the things that you would have us do. May your will be done on earth and in my life as it is in heaven. Jesus submits himself to God. And from this moment on in the story, any sense of fear or panic or hesitation in the life of Jesus absolutely vanishes. Jesus is just 
finishing praying with his disciples and he's telling them it's time for us to get going. In verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. Now, we don't know at what point Judas actually left the rest of the disciples. But at some point between dinner and here, Judas sneaks away in the dark. He goes back into the city of Jerusalem. He finds the religious leaders and he says, hey, by the way, I know where Jesus is. And if you wanted to move now, we could get this done. And the religious leaders, it says, send a crowd of people. It says, with Judas was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people, probably the temple guard and a, and a mob of people who had been standing around carrying baseball bats and torches looking for Jesus. Now it says the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. See, they, the chief priests, the elders, the temple police, whatever, they don't necessarily know what Jesus looks like. And they're going into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. It's pitch black. There's no street lights or whatever. It is black out there. And there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of pilgrims milling around on the, on the Mount of Olives. They would never be able to identify Jesus on their own. So Judas says to them, I know where he is and I know who he is. You follow me. It's the man that I kiss. That's the one you want. And it says in verse 49, going to Jesus, Judas said, greeting rabbi and he kissed him Jesus replied do what you came for friend and then the men stepped forward seized Jesus and arrested him Jesus in the garden finished praying sees the crowd arrive, knowing what they're coming for, seeing Judas, that he, who he already knows is going to betray him, come and greet him with a kiss. And Jesus' response is this. Do what you need to do. In fact, he calls Judas friend. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. He says, do what you need to do, friend. I don't detect in Jesus a hint of malice, I don't detect in Jesus a hint of fear. I don't see in Jesus any impulse to run away or to resist arrest or to fight back. One of his disciples fight, fights back. The story says that one of his disciples, we learn from another gospel that it was Peter, pulls a short sword out of his tunic, the kind of sword that a traveler in the ancient world would carry just for protection and for utility as a, you know, a useful knife in all of your travels or whatever. Pulls this sword out, leaps at the servant of the chief priest and cuts his ear off. And Jesus Jesus immediately shuts it down. He says, stop. We're not fighting this. He says, if, if I wanted to fight this, don't you think, he says, that I couldn't call 12 legions of angels. A legion was about 6,000 soldiers. It was kind of like a unit or a brigade. A legion was about 6,000 soldiers. Jesus says, I have about 100,000 angels that I could call to fight on my behalf if I really wanted to fight this. You think I need you and your dinky sword? We're not fighting this. Jesus says, we're not fighting God's will. We will cooperate with what God wants to do. And he puts his hands out and they arrest him. And they bring him right away to a preliminary hearing of sorts. 
It's kind of a kangaroo court. It's, a, it's an impromptu session hosted by the high priest who would have also been the chief justice in Israel in the matter of Jewish law. They bring him to the chief justice house in the middle of the night with a small quorum of those who would sit on the ruling council of Israel and they try to establish the charges on which Jesus will be crucified. We already know because they've said that they want to kill Jesus. We know that they've decided on the verdict. Now they need to figure out the charges that will stick so that they can bring Jesus to the Roman governor who was the only one who could sentence someone to death and have him convicted of this crime and sentenced to death. The problem is they're having trouble establishing the charges. All sorts of false witnesses come forward, but the Jewish law says if you're going to convict somebody of a capital crime, two witnesses have to have the same story, and nobody can agree. These are saying that, and those are saying something else, until finally it says two witnesses come forward, and they say, we heard Jesus say that he is going to destroy the temple and rebuild it again in three days. It's a preposterous thing to say. Jesus never said that. He doesn't even dignify the charges with the response when he's pressed. But it gives the high priest an idea. The Jewish, the rabbis used to interpret the Jewish scriptures and say that when the Messiah came, he would either restore or rebuild the Jewish temple. The temple building was something that the Messiah would do. And Jesus had said something about the temple and rebuilding. And Jesus had implied a number of times in his public life and teaching that he believed himself to be the Messiah. So in verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the son of God. He just cuts straight to the point. And Jesus says, you've said so. Jesus says, that's not how I would put it. But what you've said is true. And Matthew says the high priest tears his robes and he says, that's blasphemy. Who who believes that this is blasphemy? And they all vote in favor of Jesus' conviction on the charge of blasphemy for which he will be tried the next day before the Roman governor, Pilate. But it's funny because even at his trial, Jesus is the one who's fully in charge. Jesus doesn't answer the false charges. He doesn't answer this story about temple building. And when the high priest paints him into a corner and says, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus is faced with a choice. He can lie and say, no, you know, not in the way that you understand it. Or Jesus can tell the truth knowing that it will be his death sentence. And Jesus, in that moment, chooses death. He chooses on purpose to go to the cross. Why? Why does Jesus choose to go to the cross? Matthew doesn't tell us, not explicitly. You have to turn to a letter that was written several decades after the life of Jesus, presumably by his friend John, to discover why Jesus chose to go to the cross. In 1 John 3.16, it says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
John says, you know what I see when I see Jesus choosing to go to the cross? I see the perfect picture of what love looks like. Jesus on the cross is the perfect picture of the love of God. This is what love looks like. Jesus chooses it. John's wording is very deliberate. He says, he doesn't say Jesus' life was taken from him or that Jesus was killed or that Jesus was crucified as an innocent person. He says Jesus laid down his life. He gave it up. He chose. Jesus chose to let Judas go to the religious leaders and betray him. Jesus chose after dinner to go to the garden of Gethsemane even though he knew Judas would know where to find them. Jesus chose to offer himself up for a rest instead of resisting when the mob came. Jesus chose to keep his mouth silent at the false charges. Jesus chose to speak the truth when, when the high priest asked whether he was the Messiah. At every stage, Jesus was choosing to move to the cross. Because that's what love looks like. Love looks like Jesus knowing the pain of what it means to be betrayed by a friend, disowned by another, and abandoned by all the rest and choosing it anyway. Love looks like Jesus knowing the physical pain of being whipped and beaten and having a crown of thorns pressed into your head, being nailed to the cross and being tortured to death and choosing it anyway. Love looks like Jesus knowing the emotional pain of being spit in the face and mocked and insulted and stripped naked and hung on a cross by a busy highway for all to see. He knows the shame of being convicted as an innocent man and dying a criminal's shameful death on the cross and choosing it anyway. He knows the spiritual pain of carrying the weight of the sin of the world of making himself the focal point in the battle between God and evil, of experiencing the full throttle force of evil inflicted on him in the death on the cross, the judgment of God and choosing it anyway so that you and I could experience the forgiving, transforming, healing, restoring love of God. Friends, if there's one thing that happens in this entire series, if there's one thing that happens in this entire Easter season, it's that we would come to know, not up here in our heads, but down here in our hearts, deep in our spirits, we would know, and not just know, but know that God loves us, that God so loved the world, that God so loved you, that he sent his only son so that whoever entrusts their life to him will experience the forgiving, transforming, healing, restoring love of God. If only we could learn to embrace in our hearts and receive in our spirits and live every moment of every day in the love of God and knowing that this is how much God loved us, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. If only we could learn what it is to live in that love and then to live out of that love. John goes on to say, 
in verse 10. He said, this is love. Sorry. He says, dear friends, in verse 11, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John says this, friends, since this is the way that God has chosen to love us, may this be the way that we choose to love everybody else. May we choose to be the kind of people who when somebody betrays us, when somebody disowns us, when our friends abandon us, we respond in love. When somebody attacks us and when somebody assaults us, when somebody accuses us, we respond in love. When somebody lies about us, when somebody assaults our character, we respond in love. May we be the kind of people who, like Jesus, are willing to sacrifice anything and everything that we have and that we are so that somebody else could experience the forgiving, transforming, healing, restoring love of God. May this be the love that we embrace and drown in and live out of this Easter season. Because this is the love we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we will in just a minute. The band can come to the stage and the servers can begin to prepare. But in another place, John says this. This is, we love because he first loved us. This is how love works. We will only learn to be the kind of people who can love the way Jesus loves if we can learn to be the kind of people who can receive the love with which Jesus loves us. You can only give what you have received. And so I'm inviting you this morning to come to the table and receive the love of God in the Lord's Supper together. You can see the stations in front of the room wherever you're uh, watching uh, this video Here's what we're going to do as the band begins to play. I just invite you in the moments when you are ready to, to make your way down to the front. This is the table. I said last week, Jesus is the host. Jesus invites us to the table. And Jesus is the one who gives, him, gives us himself and his love and his life in the form of this bread and this juice. So come and receive the life and love of Jesus from Jesus, as you make your way down to the front, the trays will be here. You can just grab a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in the juice. Please just watch your fingers for everybody else's sake. Just dip it in the juice. And as you eat it, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, may the love of God seep down deep into your soul. And may it feed you. May it bring forgiveness and transformation. May it bring healing and restoration. May it feed the life of love that God is growing inside of you. As we worship and thank him for choosing to lay down his life in Jesus. To show us and to be love for us and to invite us into his forgiving, transforming, healing, restoring love. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, every good thing that we have ever received, every moment of joy we've ever known is a gift of your love. You surround us with it. We are drowning in it. We are embraced by it. Teach us to swim in it every moment of every day. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus who chose to lay down his life in love for us, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed so that we could experience your love. And I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would fall on this moment and on our community, that we would come knowing that we're loved no matter who we are, that we're loved no matter what we've done today or this week, knowing that we're loved, whatever we've not done today or this week, knowing that we are forgiven for our unlove, we're transformed out of our non-love, we're healed of the places where we felt the lack of love. Please fill us with your love as we come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.